We're going to be continuing in our series on uh, Elijah this morning, so you can turn in your Bibles to 1 Kings chapter 18. If you don't have Bibles, we have some by either door here that are free for you to take. We also have some really nice ones down in the resource room that are super cheap, and um, we really want God's Word in your hands, and so, um, so we encourage you to take advantage of that. We're looking at the nation of Israel is in a difficult place in this, in this passage that we're, that we're reading. I mean, it's true today too, but we're talking about ancient times here. So uh, in 1 Kings chapter uh, 18, they're in a really difficult place. It has not rained for three years on the land. And so as you can imagine, in, in their society, and their culture, this created an incredible difficulty. I mean, if it didn't rain here for three years, we would be in trouble. But we still have grocery stores, right? And we can order things on Amazon, and we can, we can kind of get around. But when you're counting on the land to provide your food and your sustenance, and it doesn't rain for three years, it creates an incredible hardship for you. And so the people are becoming desperate. Uh, they're they're, they're kind of grabbing at anything that they can. And so what we see is that along with the trial that they're experiencing, uh, the brother of trial comes along, which is blame, right? Whenever there's struggles and there's trials, alongside of it comes blame. And we want to know who to blame and we want to know who can we blame and, and, uh, and why is it their fault and how can we pin it on somebody in particular as if that is going to solve the problem. And so uh, we look at uh, the Eagles, right? Last week, uh, they lost. I don't know if you guys knew this, but they, they lost last week. And so on Sports Talk Radio all week, right, they, had a, they literally put up a Twitter poll. Whose fault was the loss, right? Was it Dougie P and his bad play calling and his refusal to run the ball? Was it Howie's fault for not getting him enough personnel that could actually run, uh, not enough good running backs? You know, who's, uh, the one that they didn't throw in there is, hey, are the Chiefs a better team right now? And did they just beat them because they were better, right? We don't hear that. We don't want to accept that. We, uh, that, one, that one's not desirable to us. But, um, you know, a once-in-a-century hurricane comes through and completely floods Houston out. And in, in the days following that, in the news, we hear, uh, hey, did the, did the governor and the mayor, did they not order evacuations soon enough? Did the city planners not do the drainage properly to keep this from happening? Uh, you know, uh, what did, uh, did mankind's effect on the environment create global warming, which created the, uh, the, the situation for this hurricane to come in? Uh, what caused this death and uh, destruction. We got to be able to find somebody or someone or something uh, to blame. Um, uh, let's make it more personal, right? Like what, your life, you, you lose your job or you get sick or, or, or your kids start making bad decisions or some relationship that you really value gets broken and, and, and you kind of go into this, oh man, who's at fault? Who's to blame? Who, who can I point the finger at? How can I identify what the cause of this is? Uh, I remember uh, last year, there was a storm that came through, and it ripped one of the, the shutters off of our house, and it just perfectly happened that it got ripped off the front of our house, and our van was parked in the driveway right under it, and it went down and hit square in the middle of the windshield and just cracked the windshield. And uh, we heard this really loud noise, and we went and we looked out the window, and we're like, oh, man. And uh, so I remember, um, I think it was Eloise, our, our five-year-old at the time, was like, it's like, Dad, why did that happen? Did God make that happen? Like, what? Why, why did that happen to us, you know? And, um, and it was a great opportunity to kind of say, like, yeah, I'm kind of wondering that too. But, um, <laughs> but, but the reality is, is that we live in a world uh, with storms. Like, that happens, right? And sometimes things get broken 
in, in the sinful, broken world that we live in. And, and I don't think it was a result of our blatant sin. I don't think it was like, oh, Lord, what do I need to change in my life? I think sometimes bad things happen because of the fallen nature of the world. And so it was a great opportunity to kind of explore, like, how am I going to place the blame? And that's what I want to do this morning with us. I want us to think about how do we, how do we approach blame from a biblical standpoint? How do we embrace it the way that God wants us to embrace it? How do we think about it in that sort of way? Because we can waste a lot of energy on blame. And we can actually get, we can fool ourselves into thinking that if we appropriately assign the blame, then everything will be better. But you know that it, it ultimately, and there are, there's accountability, there's things that we need to do, but ultimately, it can't undo what's been done, right? And sometimes we waste a lot of energy on something that's not ultimately going to bear fruit in our life. And, and, and the hidden assumption that's revealed a lot of times is a worldview that says, hey, if everybody did what they were supposed to do, if everybody stayed in line, if everybody kind of minded their P's and Q's, then there would be no problems, there would be no challenges, there would be no difficulties, that everything would be great. And the problem is, is that somebody else screwed up, and that's why things went wrong. But biblically, we know that the problem goes all the way back to the garden, right? <laughs> that God created a perfect world. There was no sickness. There was no death. There was no violence. And then when, when Adam and Eve rebelled against God's good reign, then everything that we experience now is the result of our human rebellion, that we're getting the fruits of, of trying to do things our own way. And, and we contribute to that as well. The, the part of the problem is, I think it was G.K. Chesterton uh, infamously said, right, that they had an article in the newspaper and it said, what's wrong with the world? And he replied by saying, I am, <laughs> right? Like there, there, there's some, uh, there's some uh, element in which all of us uh, contribute to the problems of the world by rebelling against God's good Rain. But the good news of the gospel is that Jesus came uh, to bring us hope in that. And so we're going to look at all that this morning, uh, and we're going to look at it through the lens of this, uh, this account of King Ahab and Elijah and, and, uh, and a man named Obadiah. And so you can turn uh, in 1 Kings chapter 18, we're going to look at verses 1 through 19. And here's what it says. Uh, it says, After many days the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year, saying, Go and show yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain upon the earth. And so Elijah went to show himself to Ahab. Now the famine was severe in Samaria, and Ahab called Obadiah, who was over the household. Now Obadiah feared the Lord greatly. And when Jezebel cut off the prophets of the Lord, Obadiah took a hundred prophets and hid them by fifties in a cave and fed them with bread and water. And Ahab said to Obadiah, Go through the land to all the springs of water and to all the valleys, and perhaps we may find grass and save the horses and mules alive and not lose some of the animals. So they divided the land between them to pass through it. Ahab went in one direction by himself, and Obadiah went in another direction by himself. And so to encapsulate what it's saying here, uh, there's this drought that Elijah had came and proclaimed, hey, because of your wickedness, there's going to be a drought, and it's not going to rain again until I say it's going to rain. And so three years have passed, and so Ahab is desperate, and he's saying, hey, we've got to find some grass for our animals, or they're going to die. And so he goes to the head of his household, Obadiah, who was a, we're told he was a God-fearing man. Um, and he says, hey, you go that way and look for grass, and I'm going to go this way, and, and hopefully we can find some way to keep the animals alive. And so Obadiah is out looking around, and we pick it up in verse 7. It says, as Obadiah was on the way, behold, Elijah met him. Now Obadiah recognized him, and he fell on his face, and he said, is it you, my lord Elijah? He answered him, it is I. Go and tell your lord, behold, Elijah is here. He said, how have I sinned that you would give your servant into the hand of Ahab to kill me? 
As the Lord your God lives, there is no nation or kingdom where my Lord has not sent to seek you. And when they would say he is not here, he would take an oath of the kingdom or nation that they had not found you. And now you say, go tell your Lord, behold, Elijah is here. And as soon as I have gone from you, the Spirit of the Lord will carry you, I know not where. And so when I come and tell Ahab he cannot find you, he will kill me. Although I, your servant, have feared the Lord from my youth. Has it not been told, my Lord, what I did when Jezebel killed the prophets of the Lord, how I hid a hundred men of the Lord, prophets by fifties, in a cave, and fed them with bread and water? And now you say, go tell your Lord, behold, Elijah is here, and he will kill me. Elijah said, dude, chill, right? (laughs) Elijah said, as the Lord of hosts lives before whom I stand, I will surely show myself to him today. And so Obadiah went to Ahab and told him, and Ahab went to meet Elijah. When Ahab saw Elijah, and Ahab said to him, Is it you, you troubler of Israel? He answered him, I have not troubled Israel, but you have in your father's house, because you have abandoned the commandments of the Lord and followed the Baals. Now, therefore, send and gather all Israel to me at Mount Carmel, and the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. You see the blame getting pushed and shoved around in this passage that there's a lot of wrestling uh, to try and identify who is to, who's at fault, who, who's to blame. And I want to look at it through each of their perspectives. And so let's begin by looking at Obadiah. And uh, as, as I mentioned, right, there's something appropriate of saying, hey, what's wrong with the world? Uh, I am. <laughs> I'm the problem, right? But there's a, there's a way that that can be unhealthy, and we see that displayed in Obadiah. We're told that Obadiah was a man who feared the Lord greatly. Um, and we also see in him an example. How many of you guys, uh, does anybody work for a difficult boss, a wicked boss, right? Keith, wherever you are, put your hand down, right? <laughs> we're, not, we're not asking you, right? <laughs> right? And so um, we don't have time to unpack it all today. I see you. Double hands. <laughs> there's, some, there's some wickedness, right? Um, we don't have time to unpack it all today, but the Bible actually has a lot to say about this, how we're supposed to work in a situation. And here's the reality. We all work for a fallen boss, right? Like, ultimately, there's no perfect people. And so every person that we're under, that is in authority over us, is in some way flawed or broken. But, but we're called to work as if we're working for the Lord. Scripture tells us that we should work as if God is our boss, and we should do our job with as much excellence as we can, because that's honoring to the Lord. In, uh, in 1 Peter chapter 3, it even says, uh, hey, if you're a servant and you're working for a wicked master, you should still do good work. You shouldn't use their wickedness as an excuse for you uh, to not do good work. It's essentially two wrongs don't make a right right? And so it says, hey, whatever work you've been given, do it with excellence. Do it as well as you can um, with, this, with this clause. If your boss asks you to do something uh, that runs against what God would command you to do, then it's your right and your duty to draw the line and say, hey, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to work with excellence. I'm going to do the best that I can to honor you and your position, but I will not disobey God to obey you. And we see Obadiah do this, right? Uh, they start rounding up the prophets of the Lord to kill them, uh, and, uh, and, and Obadiah says, hey, I got to do something. And so he takes a hundred of the prophets and he hides them in a cave. And in the middle of a drought, he finds a way to give them water and to give them bread and to provide for them. Um, and God uses him in this, right? Um, which is an awesome thing. It kind of reminds me of Schindler's List. You guys remember the movie Schindler's List that was out uh, years ago? A powerful movie. And 
Um, and I went back and watched uh, uh, some of the clips on YouTube. I didn't have three and a half hours to watch it this week, but but I went back and, and refreshed myself on it. And if you guys don't remember, it's the story of this uh, this factory owner, and uh, he's really using World War II as an opportunity to get rich. He sees whenever there's war, there's an opportunity to get rich by war. And so he goes and he starts this factory uh, building things for the, the Nazis, and, uh, and he hires a, uh, the Jewish workforce because they're the cheapest labor and they do good work. And so he really approaches it from a very efficient kind of how can I make the most money out of this situation approach. But, but as he's there, he sees how the, the Jews are being treated and how they're being beaten and ultimately how they're being rounded up and they're taken off and they're being executed. And he comes to a point where he can't abide by it anymore. His heart changes. And so he uses his position of authority and power and his connections with the Nazi regime to essentially ransom the lives of his workers. And he says, I'll pay you bribes to get the names of my workers on this list so that they're considered essential and that they won't be sent off to the concentration camps. And he ends up saving the lives of 1,100 people by doing this. And this is a true story. It's, it's an incredible story. Um, and, and it's beautiful, but the, the pivotal scene at the end of the movie is, is you see uh, Schindler, um, it, it's the final moment. There's no more that he can do. And, and you just see he's broken because he looks at his car and he says, look at this car. It's like, if I had sold that car, that's five more lives I could have added to the list. You know, look at, the, look at this, this piece of jewelry that, that if I'd sold this, I could have saved two more lives. Why didn't I do more? And he breaks down in tears. Why didn't I do more with what I had? And that's the challenge when you're, you're trying to be a servant of God to do the right things in a wicked situation, that it leaves you in this, this limbo where you're like, you're never sure that you've done enough, that you're never sure, if, man, did I oppose wickedness when I should have, or, or did I in some way, by, by working along with them, did I empower them to do more wickedness? And so you're left kind of in this disconnected state, and we see this in Obadiah, right? And we see it in his rambling uh, speech to, uh, to Elijah, right? Elijah says, hey, just go tell Ahab I'm here. And he's like, oh, Lord, but you don't understand. Do you? you know, don't you know how wicked Ahab is? And he's going to kill me, and he's been looking everywhere for you, and he couldn't find you, and he put a ransom on you, and he made people swear they hadn't seen you. And then if, uh, if I come to tell him where you're at, then the whirlwind is going to take you away, and I'm not going to know where you're at. And then I will be like, I don't know where he's at. And Ahab's going to be like, well, you're going to die, right? And, he's and Elijah's like, whoa, dude, like, chill out, right? But that's what happens. And, and can any of you relate to this? Sometimes we, we get into a trial or a difficulty or a situation, and we're like, oh, man, what's happening? What? I must have done something wrong. God's been waiting. He's been waiting for me to slip up. This must be my fault. What did I do? Oh, man, did I... Oh, man, two weeks ago, I went down the shore instead of going to church. I bet that's what it is. I bet that's why that shutter fell through my window because that, God is trying to get even with me, and he's, and he's mad. And so we end up in this situation of just uncertainty. Um, Proverbs says that the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom, right? And that's true. Uh, but, but the completion of wisdom is to actually have a relationship with God, right? To fear the Lord in such a way that we say, Lord, I, you are all majesty, all authority, that you're the king worthy of worship. And I also believe that you love me and care for me and want what is good for me. And so I want to grow close to you and I want to know you more fully. And we get the sense that, that Obadiah didn't know the Lord in that kind of way, right? Because he believed, hey, if I go to tell Ahab, God is going to come and whisk you away and he's going to leave me in the lurch and I'm going to be killed. And so he didn't trust that God was at work for his good. And we can't get way inside uh, of his mind, but we can get inside our own minds, right? And sometimes we embrace this sort of approach. And ultimately what it is, it's, uh, it, it's, it's a sort of a form of, of legalistic religious behavior. 
uh, that believes that, uh, man, if I do all the right things and I check all the right boxes and if I, and if I really stay in line, then God's going to give me a good life. But if I kind of screw up a little bit, uh, he's going to be waiting to kind of cut my knees out from under me. And that's not the Bible. That's not what the Bible says about God. The Bible tells us that Jesus paid the price for our sins on the cross. And if Jesus has paid the debt in full for our sins, why would God come then behind and double charge, right? Why would he also require that payment out of us as well? So we've got to say, man, God, I know that you love me. I believe that Jesus paid the price for my sin, that because of Jesus, I'm forgiven and I'm loved and I'm freed. And, and if you've allowed this trial into my life, that you, might have, you, you must have a purpose. There's something that you're doing. There's something that you're, you're working here. And I may not see it now, but I'm going to keep seeking to try and understand my trial rather than just believe that, that you're just punishing me for my wickedness. Now, there are times when, when we choose in rebellion to go down a path and God in his wisdom will allow us to feel the weight of our sin because he loves us too much to let us keep going that way. And so he says, hey, if you want it that way, I'll let you experience what that's like, but for the purpose of restoring you and bringing you back to me, right? So I, Obadiah, when he thinks about blame, his first thought is, it must be my fault. <laughs> God must be mad at me. I must have brought this on myself. And if I, if I do a bunch of, I'm going to have to do a lot of religious work to get my way out of this mess. But, but the real remedy for this is to have a real prayer relationship, right? Not the kind of thing that says, hey, I did my 15-minute devotional in the morning, I'm good. But the thing that says, hey, God, I, this is on my heart, and I'm, I want to talk to you about it first. I want to bring it to you first. I want you to be my closest ally and my closest confidant. I want you to be speaking wisdom into my life before I go looking for it anywhere else. Being real and honest with God in prayer Reading the Bible, not just to check it off. Hey, I've got a 365-day Bible reading plan, and I checked my boxes, and I feel good because I did it all. But really say, man, God, I'm going to open up your word, and I want you to show me your truth so I can apply it into my life, and I can live differently because of it. I want to enter into the, to life with, with other Christians. I want, to, I want to be able to learn from them, and I want to be able to show them the things that God's teaching me so that we can grow together. That's the remedy to this sort of thing of like, man, God's mad at me. God's going to shoot lightning bolts from, from the, the, the heavens at me, right? Um, so we don't want to embrace that sort of approach. But let me say that Obadiah was a good man. And God used him. Think about it. God used ravens to feed Elijah in the wilderness. Uh, but God used Obadiah to feed and to give drink to a hundred prophets. God can use us in our imperfections as we're growing and maturing to become more like him. Second person that we're going to look at here is King Ahab, right? And King Ahab has almost the exact opposite approach as Obadiah, right? King Ahab says, the problem is anything but me, right? He says to Elijah, you're the troubler of Israel. You did this. You're the one that pronounced that there was going to be a drought. You, look what you've done. Look at these animals dying. Look at the people suffering. This is your fault. And he looks around and he says, hey, what's the problem? We, we don't have water. okay. I'm not going to look inside and say, maybe God's withholding water because he wants to teach me something. I'm just going to say, hey, if I don't have water, let's go find more water. If we don't have grass, let's go find more grass. And don't we do this sometimes? We come into a trouble in our life, and, and this is the flip side of the coin, right? We don't want to go too quickly to say, man, God's punishing me. He's, trying to, he's doing this because there's something that needs to change. But on the other side, we don't want to always assume that the answer lies outside of repentance, right? There's a balance to this. So if the problem is, man, I don't have enough money. I don't have enough money. I got to go get more money. I got to get another job. I got I to find some way to get more money. Maybe the problem isn't more money. Maybe the problem is a stewardship problem. 
maybe the answer to it is not in getting more, but it's figuring out how to live with less. It's maybe looking at, man, am I doing a good job with what God has given me? Or can I do, do a better job with that, right? I mean, I, I want better friends. I want better relationships. How are you doing with the friends and the relationships that you have? Are you being a good steward of the people that God has brought into your life? So there is an element where we do want to look internally and, and recognize that some of the reason for the trials that we have could be coming uh, from within us. And, and Ahab is oblivious to this. And so when you're oblivious to this, you search for the answer in every other place. But ultimately, as Elijah points out, the problem is a sin problem. And, and, and the answer is, is ultimately repentance. It's a restored relationship with God. And so Elijah comes into the scene, and Elijah says, hey, I'm not the trouble of Israel. You are. With your idolatry and your worship of Baal, your people are starving, and you have 850 false prophets eating at your table. That's where the problem is. The problem is there. And God has sent me to point that out to you and show you. Now, Elijah was a unique man in, in the history of the world, right? There, there, there are very few that have been like Elijah, and he was a man that was raised up for a very specific place and time. And so it might be tempting for us to say, hey, I'm going to be the spirit of Elijah. I'm going to do it that way. Everything was black and white with that guy. He was very direct, and he confronted. And the next time I'm at Walmart, and I see somebody with 20 items, and the 15 items are less lane, I'm going to strike them down because it starts with a little sin, and then it just gets bigger, and I can't accept that, right? Or the person comes flying up to merge into traffic on the right side, and you're like, no, nope, no, no. You get your car in there, and you block them, and you kind of edge them off. No, nope, I'm, I'm here and no further. I'm drawing the line. I'm a prophet like Elijah. I'm going to strike you down, right? That's the danger. Hey, we, we need to call out sin where we see it, and we need to be uh, at times very direct in confronting it. But the risk in this actually runs the same sort of parallels what Obadiah did. That there's, there's a risk in this where we take it to the extreme, to the other side, where we lose all love, we lose all compassion, we lose all mercy, we're full of truth, but we have no grace. And that's where, ultimately, we have to look at the example that Jesus gives us in Scripture. That Jesus, we're told, was full of grace and truth. And the way that he dealt with situations, there was not a one-size-fit-all solution to any trial or difficulty or struggle that Jesus entered into the lives of the people that he interacted with and he spoke to their deepest needs. And so when the woman was called in adultery and the crowd rallied around her with stones ready to stone her, Jesus walked up and he said, hey, let the one without sin cast the first stone. And they all dropped their stones. And then Jesus looked at her and he said, hey, does no one condemn you? And she says, no, Lord. And he says, then neither do I. Go and sin no more. Right? So Jesus said, hey, the problem is sin. There is a sin problem here. You need to repent. You need to seek forgiveness, but I'm offering you grace and mercy, right? He was very merciful to her. We look on the other side. Look at how he dealt with the Pharisees. He went in and he flipped the tables of the money changers and he called them a brood of vipers and sons of Satan. That there was times where Jesus felt compelled to sharply oppose people to their face because that was the most loving thing that he could do. That was the way that he could bring truth into that situation. When the rich young ruler came to him, he said, Lord, how can I obtain the kingdom? And he said, uh, you know the law, obey all that. And he said, I've done all that since I was a child. And he's like, okay, well then do this. Go and sell everything that you have and give it to the poor and come and follow me and you'll have treasures in heaven. 
And the rich young man shook his head and walked away. Jesus had identified the idolatry in his heart. He said, hey, you, your possessions actually own you. <laughs> you love things more than you love me. And even though you've, you've been keeping the law, this thing you like, he pointed to the idolatry. And so in each situation, Jesus is saying, the problem is idolatry and the solution is repentance. But he says it in a different way. Uh, Zacchaeus is a tax collector and he's ripped people off and he's, and he's robbed and he's stolen. And, and he comes to Jesus with joy and he says, hey, I've heard your message, Rabbi, and and, and Half of all that I have, I, I give to the poor, and I restore to everyone what I've stolen from them. And we might expect Jesus to say in the spirit of Elijah, hey, that's good that you want to do half, but I need it all. <laughs> I need you to sell everything because that's the standard. But he doesn't say that, does he? He says, today salvation has come to this man's house. That Jesus had so much wisdom. And how did he get this, this incredible wisdom? Well, we see over and over in Scripture, we see that Jesus would go off early in the morning. He would go and he would spend time with his father. He would be doing ministry and then he would go off on a boat alone or he would send his disciples ahead of him and he would go the long way around because he needed to spend time with his father to gain wisdom. And that's what we have to do. When we think about blame, when we think about the calls, right, let me give you a shortcut. The, the, the root cause is ultimately sin. Sometimes it's personal sin. Sometimes it's just the effects of sin on our world right? There's a passage in scripture where Jesus, there was, a, there was a tower that fell on a bunch of people and killed them. And Jesus says, do you think those people were worse sinners than everyone else? No. But let me tell you this, unless you repent, you'll experience a likewise fate. That the wages of sin is death. And Jesus loves us too much to allow us to, to walk headlong into that. And so he warns us, he encourages us, he comes alongside of us. He tries to show us the better way and the way that uniquely reaches into us. So how do we do this? Well, number one, we spend time in prayer, right? We seek the wisdom of the Father. Instead of opening our mouth first, we go and we listen first. Listen to the Father. Listen to the situation. God, how do you want me? Are you calling me like Elijah to go and oppose to their face? Are you calling me to, to come with more gentleness and grace? And each of us has situations in our life that we can think about this, but, but let me bring it uh, into, a, into a current example, right? Um, in our culture, in our society, in the news, uh, we're continually seeing issues of, of racism and racial discord and, 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 um, and, and all these uh, wicked things, right? And it's, and it's complicated and it's messy because uh, people, um, let, let's just be direct, right? Like any sort of discrimination or racism is wrong. It's wicked, it's evil, in whatever form it manifests itself. Um, but the response to that, we can see in our society that people are taking a lot of different responses, right? Is a, is a Twitter rant, uh, is, that, is that a sufficient response to this, right? Is, is, uh, is marching a sufficient response? Is, is, um, is even rioting and damage, is that, right? So we look at all these different responses, and sometimes we get so caught up in, well, I disagree with this, but I don't like how they handled it, and, and we, get, we get confused, and we get kind of muddled in the mess. And so I want to encourage you that, um, hey, we need to just be direct like Elijah was, right? Like, racism, discrimination, it's wrong. It's wicked in all its forms, and it has no place in our country and certainly in our church. And we need to model as a church the sort of community where everyone is welcome, regardless of their color of their skin or their ethnicity or their background or where they came from, that, that, that we need to model that for the world and say, hey, here with the church, this is what it looks like to live in this way. And, I, and by God's grace, I really feel like Riverside is a place where that is true. But I don't think that's sufficient. 
I think that's necessary, but that's not sufficient. I think that, that what Jesus shows us is that Jesus continually entered into the lives of people. And he showed empathy with those. And so, so there's, a, there's a burden on us as well, not just to say like, hey, we're going to model how it should be and, and that's it. But, but we need to, to talk to our brothers and sisters and say, hey, is this affecting you in a different way than it's affecting me? Um, are you experiencing this more in a more pointed and personal way? And if so, I want to listen to you. I want to hear what God is, is showing you and teaching you through this. I want to know how can I love you? How can I be your advocate? How can I be a good brother or sister to you in this? You know, are you discouraged by, by the fact that I don't talk about it? Do, do you feel like it is that I, I want to know that from you because I care about you and I want to know what you're experiencing so I can walk with you in this. And, and this is just one example of through the wisdom of God, how do we embrace and deal with uh, this, this difficult issue that we're facing. Instead of putting blame and say, hey, well, this is, you know, this started way back and this was, this was this person's fault or it was this person's fault or this person shouldn't have done that. Hey, let me look, what can I do today to be an agent of God's kingdom in our church, in our community, and in our world? And that's going to look different. It's going to look like a lot of different things. But we've got to seek the Lord in that. And we, and we could expand this to so many things, right? The, the opioid drug crisis that we're experiencing in this community. Uh, you know, is it the pharmaceutical company's problem? Is it, is it the, the drug dealers? Is it, is it this? Is it we don't have this program? Um, yeah, there's probably blame to go all the way around. But, but the question is, how can we continue to point people to Jesus as the answer? I don't always know who to blame, but I know who to thank for the solution, right? And, uh, and, and when we say, hey, I'll pray for you, <laughs> Don't, don't say that unless you mean it, right? We've got to believe that prayer is going to make a difference, and we need to be people praying for God to bring the solutions that we need in these sorts of things. Um, the, the, it's helpful to assess what's going on, and it's part of the way that we receive conviction and we grow and we change, so we have to assess the situation and say what contributed to the situation, but ultimately with an understanding that, that, that all of our struggles and trials and difficulties come from sin, and, and Jesus is the ultimate answer to sin. And if you're here today and you haven't experienced the forgiveness that he's offering to you, if, you, if you've never, if you're saying like, man, maybe God is mad at me and I, I don't know if I stood before him today, I don't know if he would receive me because I know that I'm a broken person. I want to encourage you that, that Jesus said, hey, while you were still a sinner, while you were an enemy, while you were opposed to me, I came and I died for you so that you could be completely forgiven, so that you could not only be forgiven, and restored, but that you could become a child of God, that you could be embraced, that you could be adopted into the family of God. He loves you so much, and he wants nothing more than for you uh, to, to receive that free gift today. There's nothing we do to earn it. Jesus earned it for us on the cross, and I hope that for some of you that today will be the day that you receive that. Stop trying to religiously pursue your own salvation and receive the free gift of salvation that Jesus is offering to you, and then go forward to be used by him as an agent of his kingdom.